Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're uh, continuing with the uh, Corinthians, and today I want to read from chapter 8, and chapter 8 consists of 13 verses, but it's a singular thought, and so I want to read the entire chapter. Uh, I've entitled this, Knowing God Through Christ or Through Ourselves, and then Knowing As You Ought, and this title may not seem to immediately re- relate to the topic of uh, whether or not to eat meat which has been sacrificed to idols. But the underlying issue in the chapter has to do with the Corinthians' awareness of the community in which they live. Their self-awareness must include a sensitivity to the other people, the weaker brethren. It's a matter of knowing a set of facts in their understanding, idols are nothing. In other words, they're, they're going to talk about knowing. And Paul is going to give them a different understanding of knowing. Is it a matter of knowing persons? Some are weak and some are strong. But the principle found in Christ is not knowing facts or knowing something, knowing the idols are nothing. That's what they're talking about. But knowing Christ. Let me read then from verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols... We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So there's a series of issues in chapter 8. You know, what exactly is the issue of temple meat? And clearly the, it's purchasing the meat in the market, but also going to the temple to eat the meat there 
And some then are eager to eat it. And perhaps it's those who are, uh, you know, it's a socioeconomic issue. We're still talking about the powerful and perhaps the wealthy. And in this case, the religion is probably integrated into business and social associations. In Japan, that's certainly the case. Buddhism, Shintoism, they play a, if you build a bank, you build a, a building, you buy a car, you get married, you even the public schools, it will in some way involve you in the religion. And I think that's true in Corinth. Even in our congregation in Japan, we had a, a, one of the ladies that had to take care of the family altar where the ancestors are in fact deified. Everyone in Japan has to attend funerals at which the relative then is made into a god. And so how do you negotiate this? How do you deal with this? And Paul is providing us a principle, an example, I believe, of how we are to negotiate these issues in any culture. He doesn't hand down some kind of command, and I think that's key. The deeper issue is with knowledge. There's an issue of authority and, of course, of love. And some say in this church, well, we know the idols are nothing, and there's no problem. These, I think, are the strong. They, the strong may be those who are well off, who might have occasion, you know, to sort of like the Lions Club meeting at the temple. They would have to go and fellowship to the pagan temple. And they're saying, there's no harm. It's just good business to make contacts where we can and to fellowship where we can. On the other hand, the weak are those who may be less well-off and have less occasion, maybe even less occasion to eat meat or to eat meat and certainly in the temple precincts and they're offended that some are still keeping up these old associations and habits. And Paul is going to identify with the weak, which I think may be a shocker to the strong. He said, well, you know what? You're probably right. An idol is nothing. But he said, you know what? If I have to, I won't even eat meat. I'll just become a vegetarian if it protects my weaker brother. So he identifies with the weak. He explains this in Corinthians. You know, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the channel for the love of God. The strong, they argue, well, the best meat is to be had, you know, maybe wholesale meat at the price through the temples. They're saying, it's not that we're actually worshiping at the temples. These gods are nothing. And the strong know, and know here is the key word, gnosis. This knowledge they're going to make, on the basis of this knowledge, they're going to make a series of conclusions. And I think Paul is quoting them. Again, we have the, the issue Paul is saying what they're saying in part. He sums up the possibilities, but he does it in a very interesting way that may not be there in the English. But he uses a noun and a verb when he uses the word gnosis. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. And then he switches it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It may be that we have here the beginnings of what in the second century will be called Gnosticism. Christianity mixed with Platonic thought. But the idea is that there is a static knowing of an object the noun form. I believe it's suited to objectivity. You can know it, you can see the whole thing. But it's also connected to, I believe, total relativism and attaining a, a kind of impossibility. You know, this is Plato, Platonic knowing. 
you can't attain to the forms. You can never, you ultimately fall short. And maybe both extremes are represented here in 1 Corinthians 8 with what Paul is saying the Corinthians are claiming. The static knowers of Corinth have concluded that as an idol is nothing and that God is something. God is known in contrast to this nothing. One knows God, the absolute something, over and against the nothing. And what is posed here, I think, are two extremes we find even in, in the modern period. That you can know in and of yourself, you can attain a kind of foundational knowledge for absolute truth. Then in postmodernism, there's a kind of relativism in which we're thought to be incapable of ascertaining the truth. But I think in both instances, the knowledge is like that of Corinth or the Corinthians. It's static, it's noun form of knowledge. We have the two poles of, or two extremes. One is an all-encompassing knowledge. You can know it all or knowing nothing. I believe those are the extremes that we find throughout history. The static visual sort of knowing, and it is visual, it is kind of the mind's eye sort of knowing, explains our kind of rational foundationalism or autonomous individualism or forms of relativism. What does Paul do? He dismisses this knowledge. He dismisses the static gnosis. If you know something as opposed to nothing, if you have arrived at a button-down knowledge, then you do not know as you ought. Paul poses in alternative knowing, not the Greek noun form, attainment of an object, but the Hebraic verb form of knowing a person. To know in the Hebrew scriptures is inclusive of sexual intimacy, the realm of love, knowing of persons. We could call it personal knowledge. Martin Buber, a famous Jewish philosopher, says there are these two kinds of knowledge. There's I-it knowledge, knowledge as objective, mastery of an object. I believe that's what Paul's encountering in Corinth. Or there's I-thou knowledge, knowledge that is reciprocal, personal. It's multidimensional. Michael Polanyi will call it personal knowledge. I believe that that's what we find. We could identify Paul's reversal of knowledge. Whoever loves God is known by God. The starting point for this knowing is not I, but the fact that one is known and knows himself. Think back to Genesis, the original pair, know who they are in and through the eyes of God. Through seeing the self through the eyes of God, that's how we understand who we are. And this self-involved knowledge does not begin with nothing, something, factual, noun form, but with an outward moving love. And so this knowing is not simply the ascertainment of some fact, but is a process that is ever dynamic, continuous. And that's the way knowing a person works, right? Even a, a, a human person, of course he's talking about knowing God here, it's always an unfolding process. And this personal knowledge stands in contrast to the buttoned-up, mastery, fully-possessed knowledge that the Corinthians are claiming. Paul says, this means that you do not know as you are. The humble process of coming to know, recognizing, I have not obtained, I don't own this knowledge. Knowing as part of a journey, I believe this is what Paul is describing. 
And the other kind of knowledge, this knowledge, he says, knowledge puffs up. It's like pumping air into a balloon, or, you know, if you've ever seen a toad that puffs itself up. And then Paul does something interesting. He references the Shema, which is the Jewish prayer, the morning and evening prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Paul incorporates Christ as the means of access into the reality of God. For us, he says, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. What is he saying? Dynamic knowing is premised upon knowing everything, knowing all things, including ourselves, as deriving from and sustained by the person of Christ. Ultimate reality, he's saying, is personal. It's not impersonal, which pertains to Paul's original point in regard to idols. Yes, the so-called gods are nothing, but the contrast with this nothing is a completely different order of knowing. Not simply knowing something, knowing God exists, but knowing God is not to know a fact about God or the fact of God, his existence or non-existence, but knowing God truly is to know God through Christ. Christ as part of the Shema means that knowing the oneness of God is a historical, personal process. Not just in the original event of the Incarnation, but I believe in the unfolding of all of our lives in our particular historical circumstance, we come to know who Christ is. We do not control this. We don't possess this. We don't own it, but we participate in it. Now the catchphrase here, and Paul references this, he says, yes, and he opens the chapter, all of us possess knowledge. We know that we all have knowledge. This betrays the sensibility, I think, on the part of the Corinthians of being able to estimate who is in, who counts as us who have knowledge, and who is out as if truth. You know, they're saying who's in, who's out, as if they can delimit the truth to those in the know. This is the self-selected group, and they're imposing their values on the other Christians by saying, well, all of us in the know, all of us that are strong, I presume that any church that does what the Corinthians are doing, to say, it's all of us and no more in the body of Christ, and this is many, many churches, right? that they all fall under Paul's critique. We are not in a place to say, well, it's all of us and no more. It's not for us to say, well, if you're Roman Catholic, if you're Episcopalian, if you're Methodist, if you're one of us, you're in the know. I think it's precisely this form of divisiveness that Paul is critiquing. Next week I'll address this, and Paul addresses it more in chapter 9. That some in the church, like the super apostles, they're abusive authoritarians. They are the early version of the bishops who presume to possess in themselves the authority to say who is in and who is out. I'm open to fellowship with all those who follow Christ, but some would say you do not have Christ because you are not part 
of the apostolic succession. And that's what they're saying about Paul. Paul, you're not even worthy of an apostle. You know, we've got these super apostles here. These guys, these guys are real leaders. I believe that we have this problem. This is kind of our modern problem. We've swung at the individual, a kind of autonomous individualism, knowing in and of the self, and then we swung away from that to a kind of late modernity or postmodernism in which people say, well, we can't know anything whatsoever. And as a result of that, you may not be aware of it, but there is a turn to kinds of authoritarianism, hyper-authoritarianism. In Catholicism, there is what is called trad Catholics that are promoting the Pope's extreme notions of authority that even Pope Francis has said, wait a minute, there are evangelicals willing to submit themselves to authoritarian, charismatic individuals who will abuse them. And there's even now, there was the hashtag MeToo movement for women abused sexually. Now there's the hashtag ChurchToo movement for those abused by these evangelical megachurches. A kind of authoritarianism that I think in chapter 8 Paul is speaking about. Truth cannot be dictated to us. It cannot be institutionalized. It can't be passed on through birth or fused with citizenship. This bottled up truth that draws lines, that builds walls, by definition cannot be equated with the infinite unfolding depth of the truth of Christ, the personal truth of Christ. I don't mean to say with this that it's me and Jesus, that it's my private walk with Jesus, and we're just free of authority and tradition. Paul is describing a knowledge, a love, that begins with the cross, which we read in Sunday School Philippians 2. There is our model for leadership that subordinates itself to the love of others that counts, you know, Christ counted himself servant of all and Paul is modeling that same form of leadership. The church is made up of those who are conformed to that self-giving love. This character, you can't pass it on through a feeding tube to those who are brain dead, you have to ascertain this. You do it yourself, that's true. But it is not something that we do all, you know, by ourselves. It can't be force-fed to the citizenry of Christendom. I believe it must pass from person to person, just as love is a dynamic gift that we all participate in. And so the big issue in this chapter, it maybe it's so big that we miss it, Paul is appealing to people's awareness of themselves as a community, as part of a community. And they're falling back on Stoic and Greek notions of conscience and knowledge. For the Stoics, the conscience was the voice of God. And knowing God is on the order of any other knowing. And the Corinthians, and I think we are mistaken if we confuse this sort of knowing and the knowing of Christ. Paul, in fact, does not see conscience as an infallible guide to our conduct. That's what the strong are saying. Hey, I don't feel bad about this. It must be okay. In fact, there is the Old Testament has no word for conscience. And maybe the, the closest word is the word heart. 
but it denotes this inner depth of one's being or the human self in its capacities for emotional intensity, the word bowels that we read this morning. The capacity for reflection, but also the heart of man is deceitful above all things. There is the capacity for self-deception as well as self-awareness. And I think that's what we should think here. The strong have a robust sense of self-awareness. Their self-perception and perception of themselves as Christians is strengthened by their knowledge about the non-existence of the idol. But the weak, maybe it's true, they have an insecure self-awareness. They have a lack of knowledge of themselves in relation to others. And this would provide ample motivation to do something wrong. And the danger, Paul says, is that this knowledgeable group will taint. They're going to confuse their sense of Christian identity. He says their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then the insecure person finds destruction by being drawn, he says, into your knowledge. And so what he's talking about is not simply a moral lapse of sinning against conscience. It is a Christian or theological lapse of doing what seems to compromise one's Christian identity, causing confusion about one's awareness of what it means to be a committed Christian. And the divided heart is drawn to act in ways that inflict damaging blows on their self-awareness. What community are we a part of? How are we distinct? And so by insisting on these destructive, going to the temple, eating meat, these damaging practices, there is the danger that the weaker brother will be damaged. And Paul says, Christ died for these people. So in Christ, the universal truth intersects, and I think that's what the, the, the strong are saying, well, we have this universal truth, and, but Paul's saying, yes, but you need to take account of the personal situation that you're in. You can't just sum this up, codify this knowledge, and lay it out. How we live cannot be dictated to us in a series of doctrines. Believe these facts, believe these truths. That's not Christianity. Kevin Van Hooser says, Christian knowing, first of all, it's not a pilgrimage that we're just wandering around without direction, nor is it a crusade, a kind of conquering mastery. He says it's a missionary journey in which the truth of Christ unfolds for us. I think that's what Paul's describing. And there's this self-selected group in Corinth. We do this in the Christian church. There's Eastern Orthodox, there's Anglican. There are those who presume they can encompass, they can codify or sum up universal truth and they can say, all of us and no more. Truth then does not have a lineage that can be traced that we, we stand in relation to it. Oh, well, it's this geographic, it's this physical, it's this through this system to be received like an object. Where we obey, and I think that's the danger, you know, the two dangers here, is we push off authority completely, or we become subject in a kind of blind sense to any authoritarian structure that comes along, and where we obey without ascertaining for ourselves the truth that is imparted, we depersonalize what we would receive 
and relinquish what it means to be human. When we reduce the gospel to doctrines to be believed, facts to be ascertained, rules to be obeyed, then we have lost the personal dynamic of a living community. Every good bureaucrat, every good soldier, every unthinking citizen presumes authority simply calls for obedience. And if this means that one disclaims responsibility for their action, Eichmann said, oh, I'm just a good bureaucrat. If we relinquish responsibility even for what we know and don't know, this is really to give up on being human. We are being called to be fully human in Christ. And sin is a refusal then to know as you ought to know. A refusal of the fullness of our humanity. So we can sum it up like this. Personal truth that Paul is describing in this particular situation, this particular people, this particular time, it passes through persons not only in its origin that Christ is a person, but we are persons being shaped in his image, being able to go on in the way that he goes, being able to decide and choose in the way that he's decided. Persons ascertain the truth in the fullness of what it means to be a person in a particular community, in a particular place, in a particular time. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.